When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. God's word to us this afternoon. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds in this time to take from it what you would teach us that we would be guided in your ways with the hopes of honoring you with all that we do. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, this passage that we're looking at this afternoon is sometimes pointed to as an example when, when Jesus got angry, when he got upset, righteously angry at what we had allowed as human beings to take place in what was meant to be a place of worship, God's holy temple. Now, anger is generally something that we try to avoid, or at least acting out on our anger in ways that we'll regret. Now, with that in mind, see, I'm kind of disappointed the kids aren't here because this is a dad joke. Do you guys like dad jokes? Yeah. All right. Why, or do you know why balloons have bad tempers? because they're always blowing up. Yeah, see, that, that got the groan that it was supposed to. Now, not every act of anger is, is quite as explosive as blowing up like a balloon. Sometimes anger looks a little bit more like resentment, um, a long-simmering feud, if you will. It makes me think of a story that I heard in one of Chuck Swindoll's messages when he was preaching on anger. And he was doing so as part of the Sermon on the Mount. But he told this story of a couple that he had known that had been married for nearly 50 years and had spent probably 49 and a half of those years bickering with one another. And one day they just had enough of each other and they needed to take a break. So the husband went to the grocery store and in his foul mood, he decided to steal a can of peaches. He comes back home and as if to make a point and to kind of jab his wife a little bit, he opens the can of peaches and starts to eat them right in front of her. What are you doing, she asks. I'm eating this can of peaches, he says. Well, where'd you get them? Well, I stole them from the grocery store, if you have to know. Well, she hits the ceiling with this news and she turns them in. She calls the cops and then presses charges against him, and when he gets before the judge, it doesn't take the judge 
all that long to see what's going on. And he decides that he's going to teach this man that whatever his anger or situation is with his wife, he cannot choose to act out on that by stealing. So the judge asks the husband, how many peaches were in that can that you stole? Well, six, your honor. Well, very good then. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to put you into jail for six days, one for every peach. And before he could say much more, the wife shouts from the back of the gallery, he also stole a can of peas. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think that uh, Jesus was resentful, that that was the source of his his uh, anger or what looked like anger. I don't think he was bitter or had a bad temper. He wasn't always blowing up. Uh, the scriptures reference that it was the zeal for God's house that consumed him. And we're to take it that this is a, a good thing, a positive trait. And that makes me think of a, a zealous preacher in this area's uh, kind of pioneer days when, when Tri-Cities was first getting settled in, and I'm to understand that he was really getting into a sermon on Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, which is, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And he was fired up, and with great, great expression, he said, if I had all the beer in this valley, I would gather it all up, and I would take it down to the Columbia River, and I would throw it in the river. And with even greater emphasis, he said, and if I had all the wine in this here wine country, I would gather it all up and I would throw it into the Columbia River. And finally, he said, and if I had all the whiskey in all the saloons and bars in this city, I would gather it all up and I would throw it into the Columbia River. And with this flourish, he sat down, red-faced and fatigued from his zealous preaching. And the song leader, this was the tradition of that time, followed the sermon, he stood very cautiously and announced to the congregation with a wink and a smile. For our closing song, let us sing hymn number 365, Shall We Gather at the River? <laughs> so be it zeal or anger, uh, what is it that got Jesus so worked up in this passage in, in John's gospel? He took the time to fashion a whip out of cords. So this wasn't, this wasn't just getting caught up in the moment. He, he made that instrument with which he drove the animals out. He overturned tables. He caused quite a stir. And I think it's because something very fundamental in the relationship between God and humankind was at stake. First, I see that Jesus was upset because he sees that we are often tempted to make the transformational transactional. We're tempted to make the transformational transactional. What I, what I mean by that is, as we see in the Old Testament passage in, um, in the Ten Commandments, you know, that we're not to fashion an idol and worship it, but in a Similar way, any time that we make God a commodity to be bought or sold, we practice idolatry. And this can happen in subtle ways. 
And when we do so, it, it perverts the purpose of public worship. All right? if even, even coming to church with the, um, the mentality of, um, you know, here's what I expect out of this time can be a way for that idolatry to creep in. We think, we think of church or of preaching and worship as a service of which we are provided in exchange for giving our tithes and offerings. This too subtly can be perverted into idolatry. And it, it makes a mockery of grace by suggesting that God's favor can be bought that God owes us something in exchange for our worship. And we see this elsewhere in scripture in passages like Acts chapter 8, when the missionaries are going out and they run into this gentleman named Simon. And Simon was a sorcerer and he was used to doing magic tricks and kind of making his living off of people being impressed with the supernatural things that he was able to accomplish. And he saw the uh, the, the missionary team giving people the gift of the Holy Spirit upon conversion. He said, ooh, that's really cool. I want that. How much does that cost? Like you could buy the Holy Spirit as, as a commodity to give others and make your living. And lastly, we, um, under this point, I think that it's, it's hard for us to recognize sometimes when when this motivation is at work, even in, in small part in our thinking and our behaviors as a, the big C church, as a larger Christian entity, because we are so, you know, our consumerism is, is kind of the air we breathe. That's the water we're, we're swimming in, in our culture. And I think we see this most often when we, when we think about how wealth and position are often equated with God's blessing. That the more we have, the, the bigger reputation we have, the, um, the, the larger house or nicer car, that's all to be equated with God's blessing. And to just test this theory out, uh, you, can, you can do this on most social media or Google. I just, I wanted to see how many posts were out there right now with the, the hashtag blessed. You know what it means, a hashtag, that's something, a way to tag something so it's searchable. Well, the other day when I did this, there were 4.9 million people were posting about being blessed. All right? And not all of it was about material things. A lot of times people were saying they were blessed with a relationship that they had or a, you know, a wife or a husband or children or whatever. But in a lot of cases, it was, you know, just got a new job, hashtag blessed or whatever. So the, this idea that, that blessing comes to us in material form because we pleased God. Now, we know from Scripture that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of the heavenly light. So it's not that God doesn't want to bless us and give us good things, but when we start thinking of it as a transaction, well, what happens when all of a sudden the blessings dry up? Or we don't get the thing that we think we deserve? Well, oh, did I, have I sinned now? Have I fallen out of God's favor by something that I've done? And we make, we make a relationship, this transformation that is supposed to occur when we have a relationship with the God of the universe into something that's more like, you know, a couple weeks ago when I was making 
told you that story about the fellow at the vending machine. You know, we're going to the vending machine, we're trying to, we're trying to get from something a need that we have. And we treat God that way, well, Jesus has a right to get upset about that. So Jesus gets upset because he, he sees we're tempted to make the transformational transactional. And Jesus' strong reaction is also because um, when we relate to God this way, the next point I'd like to make is that, is that we're tempted to question God's authority. All right, so if that's the relationship we have, that I do something for you, God, you do something for me, and all of a sudden when it doesn't seem so reciprocal, you know, in our perception of how things are working, then we can start to question God's authority. Now this came up, this idea of authority came up a, a few weeks ago when, when Jesus was perceived as somebody that taught differently than the, the teachers of laws, one who had authority. And we talked about the balance between um, position or the balance between power and then legitimacy. You know, Jesus had that relational legitimacy with, with people, and then he had the power to do what others couldn't. And that together that gave him an authority that that differentiated him from the teachers of the law. His authority came from his balance of that legitimacy and power, all present in his person as an individual, his very being. And we see that to how Jesus, we see that in how Jesus responds to their request. They're like, hey, give us a sign. Show it, how is it that you have the authority to do what you just did? You, you made a mess, Jesus, right? You drove all the animals out. You've upset the tables. The money changers are, are you know, trying to scramble to get their, get their money and, and um, gather it all up again. And Jesus responds not by pointing to his position or, or some great display of power. He says, destroy this temple, and he meant his body, and in three days it will be raised again. Now when we place authority in people or places and things that and we put that above God's authority in our life, we can make the same mistake that those individuals that were questioning Jesus in that moment, we can make the same mistake that they did in taking offense to Jesus's boisterous behavior. Now here's the takeaway for me. Jesus always has the right to shake me up. No matter how settled I think I've got things and figured out in terms of what my relationship with Jesus is going to be, Jesus always has the right to come into my heart and, you know, proverbially flip tables and, and upset me because he's, he's not interested in my relationship with him being figured out. Because as soon as it's figured out, then, then that sense of dependence and the vitality of a relationship isn't there in the way it should be. And it comes down to basically trust. I know it does for me. Is that, that I'm tempted to trust in my abilities, in my bank account, in my security that I've built in, in relationships or a situation. But ultimately, my security should become in the relationship that I have 
with Jesus, and that's it. That leads me to the last point today. The thing that I think made Jesus the most upset in this situation. And Jesus is compelled to act when, when we forget the importance of protecting God's temple. And by that I mean, just as Jesus was kind of changing the concept of what the temple was, and he said, destroy this temple, and he was referring to his body. When we forget the importance of protecting God's temple, now the church and your individual bodies. In this passage, the temple that he had spoken of was his body, but, but it's not the bricks and mortar, the lumber and the sheetrock that make a church. It's God's presence. It's God's people in the church that makes a place important. I don't know how many of you are on Facebook, but I put a a post on there this week, and there was a gal that commented. I don't know who she is. I couldn't figure out who she was, if she was somehow connected to Desert Springs in the past. But the comment was, I thought Desert Springs closed and, and closed up shop. And I was like, nope. The church is very much alive and active. It's the people not the building. So buy, sell buildings, move around, meet in a church, meet down by the river. Um, it doesn't really matter. If the, if the people of God are gathered together, that's the church. And we can forget that. We can forget that. Similarly, the, the earthly temple, even the one that Jesus was talking about physically and was, was in in that moment, and referenced in this passage, was made special by the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Not just because they had spent a lot of money erecting a structure. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, when Solomon built the temple, it says, The priests then brought the ark of the Lord, Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it between the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there to this day, to the writing of that scripture, is what it means. There was nothing in the ark except for the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, those stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments on it that we read about in in the earlier Uh, scripture passage, where the Lord had made his covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, wow, that's amazing. No, he didn't say that. Listen to Solomon's error, because it's the same one we make. And Solomon said, the Lord has said he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Well, the temple was meant to be a special meeting place, an opportunity for intimacy with God, but not a token or a cage for the presence of God. Solomon's words, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Solomon's given the Lord's instructions about where he's going to be. Now, the first temple was built in about 1000 BC by King Solomon after King David had conquered Jerusalem and made it Israel's capital. 
But that temple was destroyed in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, when he uh, came in and conquered Jerusalem and shipped people back to Babylon. So that first temple remained for about four centuries. That's a long time, you know, over 400 years, but, but not forever. Now, the second temple period is marked by the return of the Jews to Jerusalem after that exile in Babylon, which happened about 70 years later. Daniel, remember, uh, perhaps the, in the book of Daniel, one of the things that encourages him is that he sees that and does the calculations of the prophecy and sees it's going to be 70 years. In 70 years, the people will get to return. So they're allowed to return under an edict by, issued by King Cyrus of Persia. And by uh, 515 BC, the reinstated Jewish residents had completed the second temple. So a temple's reestablished after 70 years of not having a temple, where there, uh, you know, and that temple remained for six centuries. In fact, um, in about 37 BC, King Herod, not the not the King Herod from the Nativity story, it's, it's his dad, um, or his predecessor, also named King Herod. Um, he enlarged the Temple Mount and rebuilt the temple and um, with the consent of the public. He kind of dressed it up a little bit. So it's this temple in which the infant Jesus is dedicated. We covered that passage a while ago, where he's taught as a 12-year-old boy and and this temple is the one in question in this passage. So it's been around for over five centuries at this point. It's going to stand for about another century until it's destroyed in 70 AD, after Jesus' death. So six centuries, a long time, more than the four centuries of the first temple, but also not forever, right? The worship of God can morph into a worship of place, a specific location. The importance of the temple, which had stood for centuries, took on a significance to the Jewish people to the point that Jesus speaking against the temple was equated with blasphemy. Those who testified against Jesus at his trial brought up this very teaching. You know, they testified, he spoke against the temple, right? And if you're not familiar with, with how they had equated the two in terms of God's very presence and, and that it was blasphemous to speak against the temple, you're like, okay, he's on trial for blasphemy and they're bringing forward witnesses to say he spoke against the temple? You know, it's kind of a head scratcher. But this, he spoke against the temple was used as evidence of his guilt, but just as God was greater than the temple, Jesus being God's son is greater than any earthly temple or church facility or building. In fact, the New Testament writers came to understand the church, big C church, all of us believers to be the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we have the indwelling Christ in each, each one of us individually and collectively. And we're to understand that our, our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit. We're being built together as God's holy habitation on earth. So temples came and went. Church buildings come and go. 
They are not forever homes for God's presence, as Solomon had hoped, as the Jewish people had kind of figured was the case, because for hundreds of years, there the temple stood. God indwells us and sanctifies us and makes us holy. And this relationship that, that starts with Jesus in our lives now carries on forever. That's the forever home for God. It's in his people. And if you haven't started that relationship, you can today. Let's pray. Jesus, you were upset when you saw that people had turned the relationship between God and God's people into a transaction, buying and selling favor with you. I'm encouraged to see how much you care about me and that your love is not for sale. It's a gift. I accept it now. We accept it now. This transaction that we make, well, it's that you take our guilt, our shame, the brokenness of sin, and you offer us in exchange forgiveness and healing and a life forever in relationship with you. Now that's transformation. And I want it. We want it, all of us together. You are our Lord. Be our Savior this day and always. We place our trust in you alone, not in people, places, or things. We praise you. In the name of the Father, Son,